expensive bottled water is ubiquitous, and it's really not good for the planet. Is there anything that can be done about it? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can I get a pulse? Barely. The idea of paying for a bottle of good drinking water was positively unthinkable. Well, until the late 20th and early 21st century, here we are in the 2020s, and along with other climate and consumption-related crises, there is a groundwater crisis. For my father's generation, it was assumed that safe, clean drinking water was simply a human right. One could certainly take it for granted, of course. Today, those plastic bottles of water are ubiquitous, millions of them. Actually, I can't even imagine the numbers. Access to water is no longer just something we can assume. And if people have to pay real money for bottled water, where does that leave people with less means? Bottled water is everywhere. Who even thinks about it? Well, our guest today, Daniel Jaffe, sure does. His new book is titled Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. As one, uh, one reviewer writes, in Unbottled, Daniel Jaffe offers a superbly researched argument that our growing dependence on bottled water is not only creating major environmental crises, but also weakening the whole notion of public water services, thereby undermining the human right to water. Think about that, the human right to water, and yet it's being sold to us in millions and millions of plastic bottles. Our guest, Daniel Jaffe, is Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University. His previous book, Brewing Justice, Fair Trade Coffee, Sustainability and Survival, received the C. Wright Mills Book Award. And if you don't know who C. Wright Mills was, check him out. A good, good man in American history. Anyway, to illustrate this moment in Earth's use of water, let me read the opening paragraph from piece in the September 27th New York Times, the fourth article in a series on the causes and consequences of disappearing water. It says, along a parched stretch of LaSalle County, Texas, workers last year dug some 700 feet deep into the ground, that's a lot of feet, seeking fresh water, millions of gallons of it. All the water won't supply homes or irrigate farms. It's being used by the petroleum giant BP to frack for fossil fuels. And the water would be mixed with sand and toxic chemicals and pumped right back underground, forcing oil and gas from the bedrock. And of course, the possibly tainted water then leaches however it wants. Another New York Times article is headlined, Saltwater Flows into the Mississippi Threatening New Orleans Water Supply. There was the lead and other pollutant water crisis in Flint, Michigan a few years ago, which many of us remember. In that case, as with so many other water emergencies, the temporary answer was obvious. Bottled water. Lots of it. Just use bottled water. Well, Daniel Jaffe, thanks so much for being with us today. And tell us, please, how this book came to be written and the research that went into it. Tell us, please, how this book came to be written and the research that went into it. Oh, hi, Bert. It's, it's, uh, I'm delighted to be here uh, with you. And um, the 
book came out of, well, really a little bit more than a decade of research. And my motivation for this was it sort of came at it initially from an interest in understanding the privatization and the commodification really of, of the commons, uh, common resources and, and, and water in particular, and being aware that there was this multi-decade process of the enclosure really, uh, or an attempt to enclose um, the, the planet's remaining fresh water. Uh, there was a lot of attention and there's been a lot of both academic and popular attention to sort of the process of privatizing uh, municipal tap water supplies and uh, the, the the sort of the vibrant and and vocal social movements that sort of merged around that um, dynamic around the world and especially uh, in the global south, right? As um, for example, uh, creditors, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, making the privatization of drinking water utilities a condition of loan renegotiating, uh, uh, renegotiation for detonations, um, and protests that emerging uh, in places like uh, Bolivia, listeners may be aware of the water wars in Bolivia in 2000, 2005, where contracts to uh, private uh, water managers uh, were so contentious, you know, raising water rates uh, multiple times and, and, uh, and, and virulent sort of social movements coming up that eventually had the effect of, um, of ending these contracts and even leading to sort of the, uh, the, the rise to power of Evo Morales and the MAS government in Bolivia, for example. But around the world, water is a flashpoint, and it's clearly because of its status as, as something essential for life. I came to be particularly interested in this other form of water commodification or water privatization, which I think has gotten a bit less attention. There, many many folks are well aware of sort of the the contention around the environmental impacts of of, of plastic bottled water, the the waste issue, the, um, the the marine plastic waste problem. But I think it is becoming clear that uh, as the privatization of municipal water is sort of running into trouble and even actually having some setbacks where cities around the world are, are taking back management of their drinking water utilities. Yes. Um, so water privatization uh, running into trouble because it turns out it's very difficult to make the profits that private investors uh, demand from the provision of drinking water to largely poor, primarily poor urban populations, and in, in particularly in the global south. And so it turns out that the growth of the bottled and packaged water industry, and I use that term package because it captures the broader range of forms in which private water is coming around the world. Um, it's growing more steadily, it's growing faster, and I think we really need to keep our eye on this as uh, what will likely become the most significant and largest facet of private drinking water uh, worldwide. So I was interested in getting a handle on what's the range of social movements and opposition movements that this process is generating. And it turns out they are really quite diverse, more diverse than I was aware of when I began. And also the, the other big surprise for me digging into this issue was that bottled water turns out is you know, far more than just a kind of a controversial consumer product, unnecessary in many places, obviously, with a lot of negative environmental impacts. But it also turns out to be deeply connected to the social justice crisis of uneven access to safe and affordable water, uh, both here in the US and worldwide. And I 
right that growing dependence on bottled water and spending on bottled water is actually exacerbating already very significant economic and racial inequalities um, here at home between the clean water haves and the clean water have-nots. Mm. Wow. Yes, and I do think more and more people are waking up to the fact that this is this is a bipartisan issue, that water is something that, you know, all of us depend on. And uh, as will come out, uh, if, if it's not already clear, I am a, a Democrat of the liberal wing of the party. But I'll tell you, when I was in the state Senate, uh, there was a private water company in a city here in this state that uh, the, the town the city actually wanted to take over, and they did, with a great deal of Republican support. So, you know, it's it's interesting and in that uh, it's raised, as you say, a lot of protest in the global south because, you know, it's water is a, already a huge crisis there, and they can't just, I mean, depend on, on bottled water. Uh, and I'm just curious about your background. One of descriptions of your background is that you are an environmental sociologist. I'm not sure I heard that term before. What is that? What does that mean? Well, uh, I, I focus on environmental sociology, which is sort of really looking at the nexus, uh, the connection between um, uh, environmental dynamics and, and and political economy, politics, and society. And so uh, the, those interfaces are, are really important, the ways that uh, environmental dynamics affect human communities. Um, the social movements are included in that, the ways that uh, society reacts to uh, environmental change. And, um, and in this case, I'm especially interested in kind of how uh, people in local communities, for example, one of the facets I look at in these movements is the, um, the contestation, the opposition that's happening at the places where groundwater is being extracted, a couple of sites in the U.S. and Canada, mm. um, and really interested in, in understanding how people view and understand their local water, what particular meanings it has, um, and how they frame and understand it and how they mobilize then to uh, to to defend and to protect it. Uh, so that's that's certainly uh, one angle on the on the issue. Well, certainly and and mobilizing to affect this, uh, it, it what can motivate people more than uh, drinking water? And uh, there's been large water withdrawals that uh, uh, the big companies uh, have have made, and there's been, towns and municipalities all over the place that have risen up and objected to it. And every now and then, they win. And it's an interesting point that can possibly inspire other social justice movements because, I mean, what's more important than, than just being able to have, have water that, that people can drink? So maybe there's a, a, a lesson to learn here that uh, organizing and maybe even the Global South. Um, but I wonder about the Global South. They don't have the financial power that the Global North does. And they face serious water issues all over the place in, in Africa and, and many different uh, uh, less so-called developed areas. And what, what, what have you found that, that they're doing that, that works to uh, protect water? Well, maybe a good point to start on this is that I acknowledge early on uh, in this book that um, addressing the, the 
the growth um, and the rise and the spread of this commodity, which is this product, bottled water, packaged water, which has happened really um, in a dramatic fashion worldwide over the course of of essentially four decades um, since the since the 1980s. And, and you and I can uh, remember, uh, I remember growing up in grade school and uh, essentially plastic single serve bottled water did not exist. Right. Um, uh, bottled water was an odd luxury commodity, heavy glass bottles of Perrier and um, Americans in the US, we consumed two gallons per capita on average uh, per year in 1980. Uh, and, and since then that has just uh, soared. And um, I think if you had told me at the time <clears throat> that we were facing a future where Americans would consume 47 gallons per person on average, that they would spend hundreds to thousands of dollars uh, per household each year acquiring that water, even in situations where clean, reliable, um, overwhelmingly safe tap water is available 24-7 from taps and uh, public water fountains, and would lug then those those cases of water from the store to their car and their car to the home, I think I and many others would have sort of thought you were giving us the plot to a, a, a dystopian movie, and yet here we are. And, um, and, and so, and what I say then is that uh, the rise and this dramatic spread across society, the normalization of bottled water, um, has different drivers and raises different questions in places that um, enjoy the privilege of uh, steady, reliable, consistent access to supplies of overwhelmingly potable, safe to drink, uh, uh, tap water delivered by local government overwhelmingly 24-7, and, and, and a very different set of issues. And it, and it raises much more complex and thorny questions in settings both here actually at home and globally across the South that do not have um, the ability to count on the privilege of, of access to those uh, consistent supplies of affordable, safe drinking water from the tap. Uh, in many cities in the global South, it is only the uh, upper middle and upper income residents who are even connected to water networks or center cities and a colonial legacy of a development pattern in which only the, the, the very centers of cities were privileged with, um, with these networks. In addition, um, due to a series of factors from international debt to those same legacies of colonialism, to the ongoing extraction of wealth from the South to the North and the form of unfair terms of trade, et cetera, cheap labor. Many governments in the global South, even if the political will exists to do so, um, are unable to um, summon the resources necessary to expand or, um, or uh, improve water systems, pipe water systems, and to the extent necessary to keep up with rapidly urbanizing or growing populations. And in those functions, we've I think we see packaged water and the packaged water industry really jump in and take advantage of a setting where governments are unable or, or in some cases unwilling uh, to do what is necessary to provide um, safe water to the large majority of the population. And, and, and so that's a very different situation where um, have to reckon with those root causes of, 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 of the lack of access uh, to that water and consider how to address it. And, and, it raises different questions, and we can talk about that, uh, you know, in more detail as we go. It's also maybe worth pinning down who the players are yes. in this industry. Absolutely. So, the, so some of the big names in the bottled and packaged water industry are the same across those two contexts: uh, the U.S. and the and the and the wealthy world, the global north. 
and in the global south, there's a, a, a big four group of multinational uh, food and beverage firms, very familiar household names, uh, Nestle, Dannon Group, Coke, Pepsi, right? And they, um, for at least sort of two and a half to three decades, have sort of dominated the, um, the industry and have gone around and sort of bought up uh, in many cases, uh, smaller local uh, bottling businesses and that sort of thing. Um, they, uh, in the United States, it's sort of worth understanding the split where at, at this point, at what an increasing share of our, the bottled water that sits on shelves and is, is sold on the shelves is actually extracted not from groundwater, uh, but instead is taken <laughs> directly from uh, public tap water systems, municipal tap water. Uh, many folks are aware of this, some are not. Um, we're at the point where just under two thirds of tap of bottled water sold in the U.S. comes from municipal water supplies. It is drawn, you know, from the pipes, uh, refiltered. Uh, minerals are stripped out. Uh, companies then add their proprietary mineral mixes, right, so that it tastes the same wherever you go. New Hampshire and California, for example, Dasani would taste the same. That, I think, incidentally, sort of trains uh, consumer palates to expect that kind of a taste. And perhaps it's one of the causes of, of um, dissatisfaction with the taste of, of, of tap water. And then the remaining sort of just a little bit more than a third comes from either from springs or from groundwater um, in other forms. Worldwide, it's a little less than half of bottled water comes from groundwater and springs, although in some places like Canada and Europe, uh, the overwhelming majority of bottled water does come from uh, from groundwater. So it's important to sort of understand the big players uh, and to, to understand that these are global food and beverage firms. And I think in many ways, this is another product to them. This is another commodity, um, perhaps interchangeable with the sodas and the, the juices and what have you that they might sell otherwise. Um, but that, uh, and, and it's important because I think the industry here in the US, when challenged by its many critics, uh, when they are they're criticized for, uh, in the critics uh, argument, um, impugning the quality of a public tap water, casting doubt on tap water in what many critics call a mm. war on the tap, the uh, industry's response, the vociferous response is, mm. is no, we are not in competition with public tap water, we are in competition with all other beverages, soda, soft drinks, food, uh, I'm sorry, beer, uh, juice, milk, et cetera, but not with public tap water. And so I decided to dig into that claim um, and try to sort of look at the evidence uh, uh, for and against it. And um, here's what I found. Uh, here in the US at least, uh, bottled water's rise has in part certainly been soda's demise. I've got a chart early on in the book that sort of shows almost an X, right? The plummeting sort of per capita consumption of soft drinks, sugary soft drinks, just right, that's a positive byproduct of you know, health campaigns and such, uh, reaction against big soda, taxes on soda, that sort of thing, and the sort of inexorable rise, except for a couple of years mm -hmm. in the Great Recession, of bottled water consumption per capita. <clears throat> so indeed, there's been a there's been a switch there. But I look at industry internal discourse statements by um, bottled water and beverage company executives, um, market reports, and statistics on changing consumption of public tap water. And what emerges is it's it's incontrovertible that bottled water's rise has also come from a dramatic decline in the consumption of 
public tap water, um, quite substantial. And so that claim by industry that it is not growing at the expense of public tap water simply doesn't hold water. And I think, you know, since your program is concerned with um, threats to democracy, we could certainly talk about the implications of that. But I think because public tap water is both drinking water, essential for life, a key function of local government, which it has uh, performed in most places for you know, well over a century, um, and, uh, 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 you know, the only thing that government does, that local government really does, that is essential for life, um, the threats to uh, ongoing uh, reliance, the public reliance and public trust on that top water um, does have, I think, very significant implications for society, uh, for our shared polity and, and for democracy. Boy, I'll, I'll say, and, it, you know, I think it's something when we just see oh, bottled water everywhere, I, I don't know how often people think about it. Maybe they're starting to think about it a little bit, but the idea of, of the commons, and if you look at it within the context of the commodification, as you say, and, and privatization of the commons, that's what's going on here. That is what's going on here, and this is a big part of it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, something that all of us need to be able to live, something that we've depended on as part of the I mean, absolute basis of, of, of our ability to survive, water. Our guest today is Daniel Jaffe, and he's got a new book out called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for water justice. So it's grown really since the 80s, and the, there are four big companies driving this thing. Um, and I, I wonder <laughs> what percentage, it, it, there's, there's the mindset that, that serves the private for-profit industry, uh, and that is that somehow bottled water is somehow better. It's purer water. What's the reality? Is bottled water safer and healthier to drink than tap water? I think most people just sort of, you know, we, we hear all these stories about, about pollution. Uh, what, what, what is the reality here about uh, how much better or not bottled water uh, is? Well, when you look at uh, public opinion polls and, and uh, market surveys, it's... Um, Indubitable that the reasons that people are consuming more uh, bottled water has to do uh, partly, partly with uh, uh, an outcome of you know, high-priced, sophisticated marketing campaigns that pitch it as related to you know health. It's associated with health. It's longevity, with youth, with fitness, etc. We've all seen the ads, um, and so there, I think we're talking about a. a uh, an industrial capitalist marketing apparatus that simply, you know, has the has the wherewithal to uh, to promote its product and and can sell right. just about anything. Um, but the other key reason is uh, a fear of tap water, and um, mm. that is a really complex societal phenomenon that has a lot of causes. Um, it's undeniable that the industry marketing has not all companies, not all of the time, but has subtly or overtly at times cast doubt 
on the safety, uh, the uh, cleanliness of public tap water. Um, there are some egregious examples that I cite in the book, but uh, there's also sort of a steady kind of drumbeat of implication uh, that uh, about you know, casting doubt is sufficient. We know we know from the tactics of the, the the cigarette industry, for example, or or the fossil fuel industry that that doubt is an doubt is their product, and 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 doubt is a powerful motivator. And mm. in this case, um, doubt about the quality of public tap water is aided by the fact that there is um, a really uneven playing field. And this is, I think, mm. you know, to getting to answer your question more directly a very uneven playing field between the um, the conditions and the regulations that apply to the bottled water industry as contrasted with those that apply to uh, public tap water utilities. Let me go into detail on that. Um, tap water is regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency under the Safe Drinking Water Act and other acts. Um, it is very strictly regulated. Tap water utilities are held to extremely rigorous standards, um, uh, particularly in terms of testing. They have to test extremely frequently. I think Washington, D.C. tests its water 30,000 times per year. And crucially, um, public water utilities, and I should say, you know, about 85% of Americans get their water from a public as in the local government entity and the other 15% or so from a private but publicly regulated uh, water utility um, unless they get it from uh, from their own personal uh, groundwater wells. But um, the drinking water utilities are, are required crucially to, to uh, notify the public if uh, contamination is found, uh -huh. notify them immediately in some cases within 24 hours. They also have to publish annual drinking water reports. They're available now online. You can see them. They have to be found. And so uh, there is a lot of transparency. And I think that is one of the gains in some ways of the environmental movement. But it, it, it puts public water utilities at a distinct disadvantage against the bottled water industry, which is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. It's treated as a foodstuff. And whether through the lobbying clout of the industry or the weaker regulatory strength of the FDA or it's just a diminished capacity, mm. um, whatever the cause, uh, bottled water companies are held not to different standards when it comes to the thresholds for contaminants allowed in water, but in terms of the testing, the regulatory and the enforcement regime, um, very much they're operating on a different playing field. Um, companies do the, test, the water testing themselves. Yeah. Um, the FDA does inspect plants, but it is quite limited in its ability to do so by diminishing staff levels. Um, one set of reports, excellent reports done by Consumer Reports, uh, found that the um, inspections had declined um, by something like half. I'm not sure that's accurate. Uh, over the course of the first decade of um, the 2000s, um, inspectors are fewer and farther between. And the most important thing is that when contamination is found, it is very unlikely, not impossible, but very unlikely that consumers will actually be notified or find out um, if contamination was detected or in the rare instances when a recall happens. Um, then in terms of sort of what's in this stuff, I said they're held to similar standards. Um, independent testing has shown uh, that very often it is no safer than public tap water, sometimes less so, sometimes it contains uh, more harmful substances, sometimes less. Um, one issue is the uh, the microplastics issue, and there uh -huh. there's a pretty clear uh, piece of piece of uh, academic studies have, have clearly shown that um, 
bottled water contains higher levels of microplastic fragments. If anybody's interested in this microplastics issue, they can look up the research of Sherry uh, Mason at uh, one of the SUNY institutions. And um, uh, the, that particular study showed that someone consuming only bottled water uh, to drink would consume 22 times more microplastic fragments than somebody consuming only tap water. Uh, so there's the microplastics issue. There are also leaching issues. Um, although the PET plastic, the number one plastic that uh, bottled water comes in, is often considered fairly stable. Um, there is peer-reviewed evidence that shows under high temperatures and when stored for long periods of time, it does leach certain um, estrogenic hormone-mimicking substances, um, uh, antimony, phthalates. Uh, and so to, to assume that um, bottled water is is overwhelmingly mm. by by its very nature pure uh, would be to 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 make a mistake and and um, and yet in in some contexts uh, perhaps perhaps it is uh, it is it does contain some less substances it, it I think it really depends on the local context but what I said this is literally a, a double standard because the the entities are held to um, to different thresholds and so adding on to that then the uh, the advertising cloud and the uh, the, the the legal staff of, of beverage companies. I think you've got a, a really tricky playing field for public water utilities, who, you know, are generally staffed with just incredibly able and capable public yes. servants, biologists, chemists, um, administrators, engineers, that sort of thing. Probably not typically trained to have to think about marketing and not necessarily trained to have to sort of do combat on the field of public relations. And yet mm. um, the sort of uh, the advertising power and the marketing cloud and the, the normalization of bottled water has created a situation that I think could fairly be characterized as a as a as a threat to um, to, to trust, certainly, and, and perhaps uh, to political pressure to maintain public drinking water at that ultra-high level uh, required for drinking. Here's why I say that. When you have a situation where now uh, nearly 9 in 10 people in the U.S. consume some bottled water, and 20% of the population, as of the latest study, now rejects the tap completely and gets all of its plain water wow. from a bottle. Mm. Um, as I said, we consume 47 gallons per capita. Um, the concern is that if enough of the public is persuaded to never at all drink from the tap, to shun it as a source of drinking water entirely, the fear is that the political pressure uh, on public officials to, um, to to raise the funds, to raise the, the taxes and the rates necessary to keep water at that ultra high drinking water standard may be weakened and that in some places um, the uh, the water may then indeed uh, the, the fear is that the water may then indeed become less safe to drink and um, and and that is that's the sort of the political pressure concern and the political will argument yeah. uh, and, and I think I'm very concerned about that I'm sure and you know if you, if you think about it again in a larger context there there are those especially these days where people uh, are uh, believers, really true believers in the market to settle everything, that we don't need any 
We don't need any uh, social structures, no uh, social justice, no uh, you know, public utilities, no sense of the commons. Oh, just let the private industry, uh, all driven by profit, take care of it, and that'll solve everything. And it, it infects so many different areas of our lives. And it, it's interesting and, and worrisome, certainly, that what you're alluding to here is uh, what you call a vicious cycle of disinvestment and deterioration of public water systems. I mean, if everybody's buying water, what the heck? And that increases distrust in tap water. Uh, how does... Right. Go ahead. Then that is really a vicious cycle. It's sort of a cycle of distrust leading to, on many people's part, avoidance of the tap. People then substitute bottled water for drinking because they feel it may be safer, weakening political pressure, potentially leading to further deterioration, and then feeding distrust. Um, the other thing that feeds distrust is, uh, and maybe the way to back up here is to talk about you know the various the various root causes, some of the um, the uh, the deterioration of uh, parts of the U.S. Uh, massive public water infrastructure system. I'm, I know your program is interested in sort of longer term trends and uh, 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 changes in political economy here in the U.S. and globally. And I think we can look at about a 50 year trend of falling precipitously falling investment on the federal government's part in supporting public water infrastructure um, from its peak in about 1977 the federal investment has dropped roughly 80% in real terms, adjusted for inflation. Um, And uh, that has, it's it's paralleled with obviously the the rise of of neoliberalism and and austerity. But um, what that has done essentially has pushed the fiscal pain or fiscal pressure down onto states and cities, municipalities. And in many cases, in most cases, those municipalities and states have have picked up the baton and done their very best that they can and have have done their best to to maintain um, water infrastructure at an ultra high quality. Uh, But in order to do it, they have had to raise water rates. And that has contributed to a dramatic increase in water rates, especially over the past 10 to 15 years uh, and uh, some excellent reporting on this by The Guardian and other entities uh, talking about a really mushrooming uh, problem of water affordability here in the U.S., uh, where rates have risen, water and sewer rates combined have risen um, 100% over a decade in many cities, where up to 40% or more of the, uh, the poorest 40% of the population is unable to afford those water and sewer rates, and that tragically is leading to an increasing phenomenon of water service shutoffs, which I was shocked to read the statistic, but on average, yearly in the U.S., 15 million people are disconnected from their uh, public water service, 5% approximately of the U.S. population each year. Now, some of those people are reconnected, but many are not, and to leave people without drinking water service Mm is um, a, a really quite a, a, a profound thing. And I think tragically, it also, of course, increases bottled water consumption. So people who don't have any other alternatives will turn uh, for a substance essential to life to the market. But we know, and if you look at the global picture, when a good or a substance essential per li- for life, in, in a highly unequal world, if that substance is provided by the market for profit, 
then access to that substance is going to be based on the ability to pay. Yes. And some percentage of the population will go without it, without clean water, which obviously can can be deadly. And so I think that's that's where I sort of find bottled water and packaged water's role in crises of social injustice, uh-huh. water injustice, so um, so troubling and so um, powerful, really. Uh, and I start the book with and dedicate one chapter to the water disaster in Flint, which yes. I think just helps crystallize um, a lot of these strands that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in Flint, obviously some terrible, terrible decisions uh, led to the poisoning, the lead and bacterial poisoning of the residents of Flint. Um, some of it was the imposition of an emergency manager that overrode the, the city council, overrode de- local democracy, and um, made fateful choices to uh, switch the city to the, um, the Flint River instead of water from the Detroit system, taken from the um, Lake Huron. But uh, but when, when that toxic tap water uh, began to flow, of course, in a, in a situation of uh, of, of a water disaster like that, of course, immediately people need uh, an emergency safe source of drinking water. The question is, in what form and what happens next? And I think Flint shows a lot of um, important ingredients here. So uh, it is true that early on when the poisoning was detected, even before it was formally acknowledged, uh, residents and activist groups in Flint began to demand um, free access to bottled water as an emergency replacement source of water. Um, but what I write is that they were, of course, not actually demanding access to bottled water per se, but to safe water. And early on, there was an attempt to get the federal government to declare a disaster uh, in Florida, a, a federal disaster. Um, like what has already been declared in uh, Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which would have opened the door to FEMA coming in, Army Corps of Engineers, possibly the provision of bulk drinking water in tankers and tanker trucks. People could fill up their own containers. Um, and for whatever reason, that declaration uh, was never forthcoming. Mm. And they were not able to get that. And that fateful development meant that for the duration of the disaster, and some would argue the disaster still continues, but certainly for six plus years, single use, you know, hundreds of millions of bottles of that single use plastic bottled water, which overwhelmingly came from Nestle, Nestle's water, some of it taken out of the ground about 100 miles away in, in Western Michigan, some of it drawn from public tap water supplies, became the, um, the sole face of the uh, emergency response to the Flint disaster. And those images, we've all seen them, circulated around the world, media, TV, internet, and I think reinforcing consciously or unconsciously the idea that that would be a natural or a logical uh, response in crisis. And I, you know, incidentally, I think it's probably incredibly priceless free, free marketing, uh, free advertising for, for the industry. Mm. But um, we do have a situation where, uh, where the pipes have finally, you know, the vast majority of the pipes in Flint have been uh, pulled out of the ground. But I, I, I argue you know, and, and, and in fact, you know, some of the activists I spoke to um, in Flint say, you know, they paint bottled water as essentially um, uh, uh, a Band-Aid, uh, something that um, they argue sort of prolonged the ability uh, to defer uh, to defer improvements that, quote, 
one activist um, early on who told me, quote, if you go to the emergency room and you're sick, you're in triage. That's how I look at this bottled water. It's not going to heal us. It's not going to make us necessarily better. It's just something to hold us captive, basically, until we figure this out. But there was nothing to figure out. Fix the damn pipes and the infrastructure, and we won't need this bottled water, unquote. And so, you know, that made me think, and I, I offer just sort of a, a experiment. Um, what if the Flint disaster um, or others like it had occurred, say, in 1980, before the advent of plastic Oh. serving bottle of water what would have been the response oh. and obviously we can only speculate but i suspect that given the gravity of the situation and the um the dire threats to human health and life that we would have seen immediate provision of bulk water in tanker trucks and a lot more political pressure to pull those pipes out of the ground and replace them far faster than the six or seven years that is has happened uh, in this crisis because I think bottled water's ready availability, its 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 portability, its its availability um, diffuses diffuses in some ways or weakens the perceived urgency mm. of fixing broken drinking water infrastructure. And I think, you know, I, I consciously or unconsciously, local officials may find it an easier, a politically more palatable sure. solution. Um, Rather than, uh, you know, having to get Congress to pass something or raising uh, water rates or taxes. And I think that is something that we need to be um, alert to uh, and concerned about. And, and I'll just go, I'll say one last thing, which is take a next step from that. I think that in situations like Flint or situations that we've seen popping up uh, elsewhere, Jackson, Mississippi, parallel situation or you know communities in places like overwhelmingly um latino or latina communities in california's central valley um, dependent on groundwater when groundwater is uh, contaminated with agricultural chemicals and people turn mm -hmm. to packaged water when we see settings where people are dependent on bottled water or packaged water i argue that that is a flag um it's a it's a signal of uh, water injustice. Um, and that's both in, in wealthy nations and also in parts of the global south. And I, I, I think it signifies that the human right to water uh, is being abridged or, or is being violated. Uh, and, 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 it, and it should be sort of an, uh, uh, an alert then to be, to be uh, attendant to that. And if people are, you know, becoming more and more aware of the privatization of everything and the the yielding of public power to private interests boy this is a classic case of it and it's you know having a two-tiered water system and letting the uh, for-profit industry call all the shots wow this is uh it's one heck of an example that uh, we don't think about that often because you know Water, bottled water is everywhere. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Daniel Jaffe, who's got a new book titled Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. There is a lot of water injustice uh, today. And uh, what, did, what did the the UN's special rapporteur on the right to water, what did he or she, I don't know his or her gender, say about packaged water and the human right to water. And it's, it's an international problem. Right. 
So the, the, the existence of the rapporteur comes out of the fact that it, only in 2010, in fact, did the United Nations, after a decade-long campaign by water international water justice activists and organizations from the North and the South, finally declared the UN General Assembly and Human Rights Council, finally in 2010, <clears throat> excuse me, declared a human right to water and sanitation. A major victory, really, in, in a lot of ways. It, it doesn't immediately guarantee access to, to, to clean water for everybody, but at least it's a tool that enables uh, citizens and civil society to um, to try to hold their governments accountable. And so as a result of that, there was a creation of a position of a special rapporteur, essentially a, um, a high-profile figure who would then <clears throat> uh, do research and travel around the world and serve as a, um, uh, a, a, a voice, if, if you will, for uh, for attempting to guarantee that water, and, and the rapporteurs have um, have made country visits to countries to do reports on progress and guaranteeing access to um, the human right to water. And uh, so, uh, I quote two different special rapporteurs. They have I uh, have changed have been of different genders throughout the 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 period, but um, uh, the most the the not the current one, but the most recent one uh, before that, Leo Heller, uh, in his report on the progress to the human right to water in Mexico um, was very concerned about some situations, <clears throat> excuse me, of dependence on, on package water, long-term dependence on package water in settings where drinking water utilities were unable to provide steady, consistent service and rationing of tap water is unfortunately um, very common in Mexico and, and across many places in the global south and many parts of, um, of the country only getting tap water service um, a few hours a day, a few days a week. Uh, and he uh, stated in his report that um, dependence on costly bottled water, partly because of the uh, low volumes and the high prices, is, is is not compatible with guaranteeing um, the human right to water. And I think that's important, right? We are uh, looking at a at a substance that um, it's heavy if it is not transported by mm -hmm. pipes. The obviously the most efficient and environmentally. Uh, sustainable way to transport water if it is encased in plastic. And, and, and I will mention the environmental impacts in, in a moment, but, um, and its cost per unit volume is hundreds to thousands of times higher than the equivalent volume of tap water uh, wow. for those who, who are privileged enough to be able to have access to it. Um, it is simply incapable of meeting, um, you know, more than drinking water needs, even when you begin to get into cooking, you are talking mm -hmm. um, in places like the U.S. If households, say in places where there are threats to groundwater quality uh, and the like, uh, people who feel that they need to or, uh, you know, are obliged to replace drinking and cooking water with uh, packaged or bottled water, we're talking something like four gallons per person per day, and you're looking at multiple thousands of dollars per household. And... Um, I'd be remiss to 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 leave out how that how the uh, disproportionate use and reliance on on bottled water lines up with racial and class uh, inequality uh -huh. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, there's been this sort of conventional story, and I think a lot of people would just assume if I asked you, you know, who disproportionately drinks bottled water, you might say, well, people with more money. Um, and that was long kind of the conventional story, but um, a whole large body of studies now has documented that it is exactly the opposite, at least in the United States, where um, it is um, low-income people 
and communities of color, particularly black and Latino, Latina households um, who consume the most bottled water, often spending about double per month compared to white and um, uh, medium income uh, households. Uh, one study said it was 1% of household income on average for black and Latino households, only 0.4% on average for white households, but some of the of the households of color in that study spent up to 16% of their household income just to purchase bottled water. That dovetails with the social groups who have the greatest distrust in public tap water. Um, it breaks down dramatically along income and racial and ethnic lines. And um, I think that rather than than trying to point the finger at some kind of a misperception, I think it probably is much more clearly if, um, you know, we have a situation where only in any given year, only something like seven to 8% of the tap water systems in the U.S. ever have even one short-term health-related um, violation of the Safe Drinking Water Act. But we have 20% of people permanently rejecting the tap and, mm. you know, sort of, 40% of them mostly doing, there's there's a mismatch. And so plenty of people are walking away from um, largely or perfectly safe water to consume bottled water. But I think that rather than talk about misperceptions, I think you could argue that low-income families and communities of color in the United States are perhaps making a rational reading of the disproportionate distribution of risks to um, tap water systems because that 7 to 8% is not evenly distributed is overwhelmingly concentrated in certain sorts of communities, communities of color, uh, rural communities, uh, uh, communities dependent on groundwater with uh, uh, contaminated groundwater and some cities with lead leaching from, lead or bacteria leaching from aging pipes, usually just in buildings, individual buildings rather than the system as a whole. And we have to look, I think, at the U.S.'s long history of of systemic racism yes, and yes. structural disinvestment and understand why um, some communities uh, uh, would logically sure. uh, place less trust in local government that is providing this tap water. And so I think that is why um, many advocates and I also argue that it is only going to be uh, pivot towards solutions and discussions of movements and solutions, but that it is only going to be through a wholesale, large-scale reinvestment in um, drinking water infrastructure from the federal level um, for all communities across the country, prioritizing those who are most structurally disadvantaged, that we will ever be able to address the, the creeping distrust and the drivers of increased dependence on um, this far higher environmentally, uh, high, product with far higher environmental impact, um, uh, bottled and packaged water. And so it really needs to sort of look at um, reinvesting across the board and a, a sort of adjust, adjust this model of a solution. Uh, and I can talk, you know, when we get toward the end uh, about some of the solutions and some of the proposals that are that are out there right now to do just that. And certainly the Republican Party, ever since Franklin Roosevelt, uh, focused on the common good and, and common needs. They've been trying to undo that. 
And as you say, you know, people, we have a two-tier water system. There's no question about that. And I can understand the mistrust because we haven't, there's been less and less investment in it. And I, and I have to ask one thing, you know, there's a lot of people who uh, care about the environment and want to do something about it and make sure to separate our trash and feel a lot less guilty when we put plastic empties in the recycling bin. What's the reality there? I hate to ask, but I need to. <laughs> um, so uh, we could begin with, start with the fact that um, I think it's true that uh, the, the, there has been a wholesale shift away from, say, uh, glass beverage containers or plastic containers. And the one of the ways that the uh, beverage industry secured public acceptance of the, this dramatic shift for plastic and the selling of water in plastic uh, was through promoting and, and encouraging cities to you know, uh, institute plastic recycling programs and their, or start entire curbside recycling programs. Um, the, if we were to, if we were, the U.S. Uh, recycling rate as a whole on, for plastic is, is 5%. It's mm, been falling mm. year, year on year. For, for plastic water bottles, it's something like 26%, which is also down from previous. Um, worldwide, only about, seven to nine percent of plastic bottles are recycled and in fact you know just to get a handle on how big a problem this is um <laughs> we are looking at a situation where we have 600 to 700 billion single-use plastic beverage containers um being used and disposed of every year worldwide um you know of which only something like seven to nine percent are being recycled uh, some are being burned some are being landfill mm. but Huge amount is making it into the marine environment, into terrestrial um, and and surface water. And um, beverage bottles in their caps are the number one marine garbage item worldwide. And one study said they are half of all marine garbage. And because bottled water is the single biggest beverage packaged beverage worldwide by far, it is responsible for the biggest pie slice of that waste. So. Um, Yes, when I, you know, we're moving to talking about solutions, and yes, there are so yes. many things that people can do, and so many things that movements are doing that are very exciting. So, I do want to make sure we have some time yes, for that. Yes, please which is, do that now. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, I look in the book at, at different, you know, different movements, and there are two two main facets. One of which is places where people are sort of communities, local communities, most of them rural, are challenging the either proposed or ongoing extraction of groundwater by the bottling industry in their communities, and those are very particular kinds of places, and I look at one deep sort of case study in the U.S., in Oregon here, and one in southern Canada, fascinating coalitions of local uh, communities, businesses, um, indigenous activists, and others, very diverse, surprisingly diverse um, coalitions, and, you know, I guess I, it's important to sort of say, well, you know, while that, that, that these movements challenging bottled water are actually succeeding in many places. One of the biggest surprises for me in writing this book was how much hope and how much um, sort of uh, positive outcomes I found. The other facet, and it's the one that I think is more accessible to far more people in communities who are listening, is what's happening at the consumption end with bottled and plastic bottled water. And, and that is what I sort of lumped together and call the reclaiming the tap facet of the movement, sort of this constellation of really diverse efforts at local government levels by city councils by um, schools and school districts by university students by nonprofits and even some private businesses um, 
all around the model of bringing back clean, new water fountains, refilling stations, uh-huh. reinstalling access to public water, clean, attractive, attractive public drinking water in public spaces, building out those networks that we've lost over the past couple of decades, funding that expanded infrastructure in parks, in public schools, critically, in buildings, and educating and promoting local tap water quality. Um, and that set of initiatives is, I think, the most exciting. It's really diverse. It is, there are a million points of entry. Um, people uh, who have access to schools or are active in their schools can work on restoring fountains in schools because many schools have shut off their water fountains right. due to detecting lead or something else. It might just be in the piping. There's a, you can look up filter first online. A whole slew of school districts are finding out that all you need to do is install lead filtering hydration stations, refilling stations, and you can render at least the water from the water fountains safe to drink. Um, the Detroit public schools, amazing story, detected drink uh, lead in their drinking water in 2018. They had to shut off the fountains for a little bit, but within a year they had replaced all their water fountains with lead filtering, clean, shiny hydration stations, the ones that count how many plastic bottles have been avoided, and gave every one of their 50,000 students a metal refillable water bottle. And they have then reinvigorated that practice, that culture of public drinking water. And, um, And that extends to this renewed interest in refilling, refillable water bottles, there is um, an entity based out of the UK, but it's global now called Refill. And there is an app, the Refill app, that lists 300,000 refilling sites globally. They might be water fountains, but they might be private businesses that will let you go in without buying anything and fill up your water bottle. And this, up to something like 60% of people in the US say they now carry refillable water bottles. Um, and you could think of this as just, you know, sort of individual action, but I think there's more to it. I think this is essentially restoring a collective societal culture, cultural practice of demanding and relying on and counting on public drinking water. And it is um, a, a, a reinvigoration of, of the polity, really. Um, and I think it can happen in communities across the board. Um, well, it's, so, you know, yeah. and one could think, well, you know, Bottles are so convenient. They're light. They're easy. It's it's incredibly uh, convenient, but it's awfully good to hear that there is progress being made. That uh, more and more people are carrying their own bottles, and more. I, I know lots of places have bottle filling stations. It's you know it's not all that complicated. We just have to uh, to focus on it and not be you know cowed by the power of the big four. That, uh, that want to own all the water in the world and sell it back to us. The book is called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. Our guest has been uh, Daniel Jaffe. And uh, yeah, it's a tough fight, but uh, it sounds like uh, there is reason for optimism. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you. Thanks so much, Bert. I've really enjoyed it.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.